her, you look really happy this morning. And she said, well, why not? Everything is great. And she was not dressed super well and wasn't, uh, wasn't even uh, a person that had the greatest health uh, as some might have. But he said to her, you know, you, you do this all the time. You've been here for years. I've been watching you over and over again. You always generally look pretty happy today. You look super happy. And he said, uh, I know that not everything's perfect with you. You seem to wear your troubles well. She said, yeah, pastor, the truth is you can't reach my age and not have trouble in your life. She said, it's just to me like Jesus and Good Friday. And he smiled at her and she continued on to explain. She said, yeah, you know, Jesus was crucified on Friday. It was the, likely the worst day of human history, the worst day uh, in the whole world, the day that Jesus Christ died and people's hope was lost. And he said, she said, but then I just remember that it was three days later after that that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So when I get in trouble, when I go through hard times, I've just learned to wait three days. And oftentimes things become all right again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely the essential hope for all Christians of all time. Nothing in the world inspires and brings hope to our lives like this statement. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, he will live again. And hope is a word that I think everybody desperately needs in this day and age. Hope is not uh, something that is a wish kind of idea. Sometimes we'll say things like that related to sports or life, like I hope the Jaguars win more than three games this year. Well, good luck with that. But uh, I, I hope that, you know, I hope my kids get good grades or, or whatever. We use that word a lot. But when we, when we use the word hope, in the Bible, we're not talking about something that we wish will work out because it's a preferred outcome. No, hope in the Bible is actually a confident expectation based on a promised reality. And for those of us that know Christ as Savior, there's a lot to hope about. Because we find, first of all, that our foundation or basis of hope is the Word of God. The, the, the center or the, the absolute nature of our hope is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And the guarantee of our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the emphasis of this story. The resurrection. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection of life? Of course, it's going to have a more uh, an immediate and dramatic impact on Lazarus and his family. But there are far-reaching implications for you and me today of what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So as we go into this story today, I want you to see a few things about Christ and what he does and what he says and what it means for you and me. Number one, I want you to learn today about the ministry that he gave. The ministry that he gave. In verses 1 all the way down through 16, the, the, the verses that I read before you, you see that Jesus is going to do ministry work. He's first of all going to show and demonstrate a ministry of concern for his people, for his disciples, and even for Lazarus's family. Notice, if you will, uh, in verse number 4, it says, Jesus heard that and he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's going to show the disciples 
that everything we encounter in life, a sickness, a hardship, brokenness, difficulty, challenges of any sort, all have one chief end and purpose to them. And that is that God does everything that God does in our lives, both for our good and for his glory. We know that. And th this story of Lazarus is going to be just that thing. And, and by the way, guys, when, when you come to that realization, all of a sudden you are not looking at every difficulty that comes into your life asking, God, what are you doing to me? You will start asking God questions like, what are you doing for me? Because if we have a posture that every time something doesn't go exactly the way we want to or every piece of news that's disappointing comes our way and our posture is, God, why are you doing this to me? We will question who God is. We will not rest in what God says. And we will struggle in our Christian experience every single day if we do not understand that what God is bringing into our life is first and foremost for good. Can you believe that today? Do you believe that today? Will you believe that today? In fact, look at verse 15. In verse number 15, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now watch this statement. And I am glad for your sakes. Notice that phrase there, for your sakes. Whatever was going on with Lazarus, whatever was going on in his life, whatever was going on in these circumstances, this, what Christ was getting ready to do was something that he was doing for them. They were about to learn something about God that was going to forever and drastically change their lives. Now, this is on a macro scale. This is a huge lesson to learn about the power of the resurrection. But let me tell you, friend, any time, any time God takes your hand and walks you through something that is heartbreaking, believe me, there is something that he wants you to learn about him and something he wants you to learn about life and something that will strengthen your faith if you let it. Not only was this for their good, it was also for their growth. There was something for them to learn here about Christ that sometimes is hard for us to learn. I believe the main lesson that you see throughout this text is about the lesson of waiting on God. And the main lesson I think that he's going to teach his disciples and Mary and Martha is that God's timing and God's ways are not always our timing and our ways because we don't think like God. We're not God. We don't see everything that God sees. And yet, God intentionally, watch this, intentionally waited on his time to do his thing so that his glory would be bigger in their minds and so that these disciples' faith, a faith would be strengthened in a greater way. i got to tell you, friend, that's not always easy, but aren't you glad that God's timing is far better than your own timing? And then what God is doing literally for them is he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Had he come earlier and healed Lazarus before he died, that would have not been near as miraculous and instructive as what he did after he already died. I mean, back in verse 6, it says this. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Christ knew Lazarus was sick long before he went there. Go over to uh, verse 21. Now Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever said something like that? 
If this wouldn't have happened here, if that wouldn't have happened here, if God would have allowed this here, if God would have did this here, if God would have stopped that hair there, if God would have not allowed this to happen here. Hey, this is a natural question that most people have about many things. God, why did this happen? Why did it happen now? Why couldn't it have happened at this time? Why did this all work out this way? And what I'm trying to show you this morning is that Christ's ministry to them was to teach them something about his love, to teach them something about his timing, and to teach them something about his sovereignty. You need to remember this while you're waiting. Sometimes while you're waiting, you'll begin to question. You'll begin to question the love and concern that Christ has for you. Verse 32 Mary came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Martha questions him. Now Mary questions him. Verse 37, the crowd is going to question. And some of them say, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Folks, there's another subtle lesson here that oftentimes I think we need to learn today, and that is this. Do not measure the love of Christ for you in proportion to the comfort or lack of comfort that you are experiencing in your life. If that is the measurement of God's love for you, that you're never sick, that you never have financial strain, that you never have problems, that you never cry, that life's never challenging, that your kids aren't heathen or whatever else it might be, then you will, you will, you will be tempted to think that the only measurement of God's love for me is in what God does for me. And the fact is, it's even a skewed view because we only think the things that we want in life are those things that are in our minds good for us when God's got something far better for us in mind. John Piper said it this way, don't measure the love of God for you and how much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life. If we were to measure the love of God like that, then he hated the Apostle Paul. What a sad thing. What a sad thing that sometimes we question God's love for us based upon what he does or does not do for us. Friend, I got to tell you. There is an already settled answer for that question, does God love you? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look, the cross gives us that answer. What he did for us in providing salvation for us gives us that answer. But here's the bottom line. Look at what Martha comes up and says in verse number 22. She comes up and says, yet Lord, here's the deal. If you will, whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. So I love that. Even though she questioned, watch this, even though she questioned God. And you can study the life of John the Baptist to know that questioning or doubting God is not necessarily a bad thing. See, we want our lives picture perfect. We want our lives like the Christmas card. We want our lives like, you know, being featured on Southern Home Magazine where everything just looks exactly perfect. And I want you to know there ain't a person's life in this room that is exactly perfect. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. You will doubt. You will have questions. You will wonder if God's really there. Come on. You will wonder if God really cares. That's not necessarily the thing that dehumanizes you. Here's what I love about this. When she got to that point, she brought her concern to the Lord. That's the right place to bring it, is it not? I wonder about us today. I wonder if we have ministry of concern for others. Like Martha, I wonder if we're concerned enough about someone to pray for them. 
Are we concerned enough about someone to bring them to Jesus, the only one that can fix it? It was a ministry of concern. Secondly, it was a ministry of compassion. It was a ministry of compassion. Look in chapter 11, verse 3. The Bible says, therefore the sister sent to him and said, Lord, behold, watch this. He whom you love is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He loved Lazarus and he loved Mary and Martha. Now, verse 35, the, uh, literally uh, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus arrives on the scene. And everybody is weeping, everybody is filled with sorrow. It's a, a funeral scene for sure. And the Bible says that Jesus wept. Just uh, on our break, Angie and I went to uh, part of our trip. We went to Branson, Missouri. And in Branson we saw uh, their sight and sound theater rendition of the life of Jesus, which was, which was fascinating. And, and this scene was my favorite scene of the entire show because Jesus wept was pictured. And I've never, I've never saw it like that. It's sometimes hard to get your mind around what it was, but basically Mary and Martha had fallen on their knees when Jesus arrived and they could not control themselves. Their sobbing was out of control. It was loud. It was, it was, uh, it was obvious. And, and, and Jesus literally in the middle of that drops to his knees with them, puts his arms around them and cries out loud with them. And I got to tell you, at that moment, this thing all came true to me about what was happening. Jesus, what, I've heard all kinds of people say Jesus wept because he knew Lazarus was in heaven and he was sorry that he was going to have to bring, oh, come on. Oh, come on. You want to know why Jesus wept? I'll tell you why. Because people he loved wept. He wept because their feeling was in his heart. That's what compassion is. The word passion in Greek means to feel. The word calm, the prefix means with. Compassion means to feel what someone else feels. And by the way, if you've ever needed permission to grieve... You have it right here in this passage of scripture. Someone said it like this, grieving is as natural as crying when you are hurt, as sleeping when you are tired, as eating when you are hungry, or sneezing when your nose itches. Grieving is nature's or God's way of healing the human heart. These people felt it. These people wept. These people grieved. And I, and I love this. You see, concern moved Martha to pray for them, and compassion caused Jesus to move into action for them. And that's really the lesson about ministry that we should be learning today from Christ. It should be everything we do at our church, everything we do for this community ought to be birthed out of these two things, concern and compassion. Concern for where people are, concern for their spiritual needs, and compassion for the brokenness that is all around us. Spurgeon said these words about compassion. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap over uh, to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go to hell unwarned and unprayed for. Concern. And compassion, the ministry he gave. Number two, I want you to see the miracle that he performed. The miracle that he performed. In our text, you see the most obvious thing, and that is death all around us. You see the cold reality of death. There's very few places in the Bible that are more funereal than this place. 
Very few places that you get to see and absorb and witness the scenes of death, the experience of death, the graveside of death, the, the funeral service of death. And here it is. And boy, is it not a reminder for each and every one of us, or it should be, that there will be a day where this will be true for every single one of us. Death is no respecter of person. Death is no respecter of age. Death is no respecter of gender. Death has no concern for love and family. I mean, folks, and by the way, death is no indication that God doesn't love the person that died. Death is just real. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2.1, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Watch it. Lazarus was dead. He had died. Nothing could be more miraculous than if a person would come back alive again after they were actually dead. And yet that's what you find in this text. There could be no greater obstacle. There could be no greater need that somebody has than that they have actually died. And can I tell you this? There's only one way that death can be reversed, and that is through a resurrection. And in this text, you're going to see death's cold reality, but you're also going to see Jesus' conquering resurrection. You're going to see Jesus come to the scene, beginning in verse number, I think it's 38. And the Bible says this, Then Jesus again groaned in himself. He came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he, hath been there, uh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took, the stone, uh, they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. I mean, just look at, look at the finality of those statements. I mean, back in, back in verse number uh, uh, 20, or 39, Martha, the sister of him who was dead. Then you look at verse uh, 41, where the dead man was laying. Final. It's final. The funeral has taken place. The body is in the tomb. It's like somebody has been literally lowered down six feet into the ground. It's over. It's over. That is, it's over until Jesus comes by the tomb. He lifts up his head in the next verse. Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of those who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, watch it again, who had died, came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Think about this, friend. This is the power of the word of Jesus Christ, and is the power of the creator of all things over all things. Here, nature is defied. Here, death is defeated. And here, come on, here is what Jesus Christ can do with somebody who's dead. Raise them up to life. You know what's amazing? One of, my, one, of, one of the most astonishing things to me in all the world is to participate in the funeral of somebody who knew Christ as Savior. It is one of the most unique experiences. In fact, I tell people all the time, I'm kind of weird for this, but I, I would rather do a funeral for a Christian than a wedding. I, I know it's weird, but I, 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 weddings are like high drama, high octane. Funerals, man, look, if a person was saved and everybody knew it, it's like a celebration. 
And I've stood in here at some celebrations. I've stood at the old campus at some celebrations. I remember when our friend Josh died. I've told this story before, and some of you aren't, haven't been here long enough to even remember Josh. Josh died when he was 24, 25 years old. He had a heart condition. We prayed him through a, a heart transplant when he first came to our church. An amazing story. He died in his sleep just about a year later, and, and uh, Aaron, Aaron uh, and, and the old secretary were there the, the day after he died when I received a letter from Josh in the mail that he wrote the night before he died. And he got sent through the mail where he was in Chicago at the time, and I received this letter. He was just sharing some things that God was doing in his heart. I'll, I'll never forget this. One of, the, one of the lines, one of the things he talked about in that uh, letter to me, the night he died, was this. I've been learning recently that God is real. Lord have mercy, friend. When I opened that letter that morning, I read it thinking about where Josh was and what was going on. I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Nothing is more real to Josh right now than God because God is real. Hey, friend, it is all real. There is a death. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There is a Jesus. There is a cross. There's an empty tomb. There's a resurrection. It is all, in fact, real. It's real. This story just gives us a picture of that. But, but, but here's the thing. I don't, I don't want you to get caught. This, this is obviously awesome. It's a miracle. But it's just the first part of the story. There's a much larger narrative in this story than just Lazarus being raised from the dead. By the way, Lazarus would die again. Lazarus was going to die again. There would be another funeral. I mean, Lazarus is not still around, okay? I mean, Lazarus would be on a serious public speaking tour right now if he, was, if he was still here. But Lazarus is going to die. So when the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead over in, <clears throat> um, oh my, just slipped me, uh, Colossians chapter 1, it wasn't that he was the first one ever raised from the dead. He was the first one raised from the dead never to die again and had authority over all resurrections. So Lazarus would die again, and this is awesome. But, but i got to tell you, this is another one, as John said, of the many proofs that Jesus was who he said he was. So yes, I'm interested in the ministry that he gave. That's amazing. And I am certainly interested in the miracle that he performed. But the third thing I want you to see today, and, and really where Jesus goes to and runs to after this, is the message that he preached. What was Jesus' message to this crowd? What was he saying? What was, uh, uh, what was he getting at? Look, let's go back to our text, verse number 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Friend, the, the, this may be one of those places like John 3.16 that is one of the great summaries of everything that the Bible is all about, everything that God wants you to know about him and the whole story, if you will, the whole narrative, everything about the gospel is packed right into here and everything that you need to know. Here's the bottom line. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus in the is the life. And people need to believe in him in order to have eternal life, period. That's the message. But if you look at these words, there's really some interesting and powerful theology going on here, too. The the fact is that the resurrection of Jesus is our future hope. When the Bible says the resurrection, it's not just talking about the fact that he was going to be raised for that. In fact, 
Martha knew that. Remember, she said, Lord, I know he's going to raise up in the last day. And then he says, I am the resurrection of life. Telling her not to look so much for an event, but to look for a person. But here is the bottom line. There is a resurrection to come. There is a hope. There is a future. He is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And D.A. Carson said, that is only going to pale in anticipation of what is yet to come. Because just a few chapters later, he is going to raise himself from the dead. And not only is he, did he raise himself from the dead, but according to 1 Corinthians, because he is the first fruits of those that rose from the dead, we are going to be raised with him ultimately. The perishable is going to put on imperishable. The mortal is going to put on immortal. And we will be all screaming and shouting the victory. Death is swallowed up in victory and the grave is lost its sting. Bottom line, one day we are all going to be resurrected to forever be with the Lord. So in that sense, ultimately and in the future, that is our hope. Remember what he says back at the beginning of John 11. He says, Lazarus is just asleep. Asleep. Interestingly enough, the word cemetery, the word cemetery literally means a place of sleep. What a fitting picture of what it means to be a Christian and to die in anticipation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, friend, listen, when you die, you're going to be absent in the body, present with the Lord. But one day God's going to resurrect it all back to stand before him and to live in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. And every cemetery that is filled with people who have known and loved God are waiting for what 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 describes. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Watch it. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I don't know about you, friend, but I am looking forward to that day, aren't you? I'm longing for that day. I'm leaning in saying, even so come Lord Jesus. And he is and will definitively come again for his own. That's the resurrection. And the life, that is our eternal and final hope. Whoever believes in me will Never die. A friend, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, I'm here to tell you that death is a scary and frightening prospect for you because you do not have hope beyond this life. You're, you're, you're coming up to an inevitable dead end with no hope about what's to take place after that. And I'm here to tell you, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. You can't get to God except through Jesus. So if you don't have Jesus, you're not getting to God. And yet, you're going to die, which means you're going to have to go somewhere else when you die. And if you're not going to go to heaven, sadly, you're going to go to a place called hell. And that is an awful prospect for anyone. People outside of Christ cannot claim he is my resurrection, he is my life. What a sad and terrible place to live. What an awful future to live your entire life struggling through all that we have to struggle with only to then ultimately end up eternally destructed because my sins were never forgiven and I never made peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is not hope. But Christ is. And then he pins this question on Martha. Look at the very last phrase of verse 26. Do you believe this? 
That's the question I want to leave with you today. Do you believe this? I know that people try to make things more complicated theologically than I think they really are. Here's the bottom line. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You say, it's got to be more complicated than that. Then why did Jesus put a little child in his lap and say to them, except you become like this little child, you will never see the kingdom of God. There are certain things that children will never understand. There are certain things I will never understand. But I know this much. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And this much I know, whoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. I know that much, friend. Listen, there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I want to know. But I do know this much. I can believe on the name of the Son of God. I know this much. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know this much. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. I know this much. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Do you believe this do you believe this I hope you do and if you don't please today listen open up your heart like the front door of your house and welcome Jesus Christ to be your savior today you can do that today Lord I'm a sinner I know I need you I want to know that when I die I have a relationship with you I want to be your follower you can do that today You can trust Christ today. Let's bow for prayer if we could.